Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Perfect Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Ms. Emily Labor Warren, editor for Popular Science Magazine, who will tell us about the top ten scientists to watch. Why also, we'll find out why oil is so slick. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. All right. So what's going on in uh, science this week? Science this week? Besides, of course, the governor race heating up as we approach the deadline. Another one or two weeks ago, right? That's right. And uh, off we're off to the races there. Yes. So here's something I've been wanting to ask you. Um, do you have patent foreman oval? Okay. Or PFO? PFO. No. Uh, also known as a hole in the heart. A hole in the heart. Actually, I probably do. Really? Or I did. Uh-huh. I had a, a ventral septal defect, which Ooh. was a hole in the heart. Ooh. It turns out one in five people actually suffer some form of a hole in the heart. Yeah, you, you didn't think I'd actually had a hole in the heart, did you? No. No, you can see my scar right here. There you go, see? Whoa. No. It's open, real. Open heart surgery at the age of three, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Isn't that cool? And you survived. Uh, unfortunately for the planet, yes, I did survive, but anyway... <laughs> Anyways, it turns out that one in five people have this symptom, okay. and they believe it's one of the leading causes of migraines. Okay, so where's this hole in the heart? Is it like on the surface of the heart or between the valves? It's between the two atrias. Okay. So as the heart's forming you know, under development, usually there's a wall that forms right. between the two. In a lot of cases, there's a little hole that's left over. Mm-hmm. What happens is oxygenated blood and deoxygenated blood mix a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't get the complete flow through the lungs. Right. And it's believed that this hole could lead to small clots warming, possible biochemical imbalances. Mm-hmm. And usually, if you have a small clot, the lungs can actually be mm-hmm. able to dissipate it in such a way that it doesn't go to your brain. I see. What they found is once they've sealed up this hole, the people who had migraines had a dramatic reduction in occurrences. So the idea is that perhaps these clots are going to the brain, and that's causing the migraines. Right, like tiny, tiny, tiny clots. Tiny, like micro, nano clots. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, this is quite odd because this sort of uh, problem can be easily repaired. I mean, I got mine repaired when I was three years old. Right. So they've done this without surgery, actually just using a transcatheter device. Uh-huh. Which, uh, they plug a right. micro umbrella into the hole, open it up, and it's all sealed. Okay. Well, I used to have headaches quite a lot, and I thought maybe some sort of inflammation res- uh-huh. response in your body. So right. maybe when you have a clot or something, it could be provoking some sort of inflammatory attack somewhere in your brain. And yeah, probably true. I, I imagine it's probably a lack of oxygen in some parts of the brain causing right. the muscles to hyperreact. Yeah, yeah. So this is work that was carried out by Stephen Whitaker at the Swiss Cardiovascular Center in Switzerland, and it's an article found in the late August edition of New Scientist. <laughs> Ha 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 ha! 
All right, well, moving on from crazy heart diseases, headaches, hearts and headaches. Man, what a headache. Well, instead we have to nuke the fungus. Nuke the fungus? Nuke the fungus. Wow, using what, microwaves? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you're using radiation treatment to kill uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Ah, uh, why won't it become even more resistant and mutate even more? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, there's the idea is that you have such strong doses of radiation, it can kill pretty much anything. Ah, uh, wipe them out. All of them. By nuking them, it turns out. Cool. You know, this is actually a lot of therapy that's been done before in cancer treatment. Oh, okay. So what researchers have done before is they've attached radioactive particles right, to right. antibodies. Right. And these antibodies locate the cancer cell, uh-huh. bring the radiation within close proximity to the cancer cell, yes. and basically nuke it. Yeah, it's uh, one of the novel forms of drug delivery, I guess. Right. Essentially, instead of drugs, you're delivering radiation. But it'll be concentrated on one region. Right. So it's quite fascinating. They said, oh, geez, why can't we do this with bacteria? So okay. they said, sure, let's design some antibodies for some bacteria and see if we can kill them with radiation by attaching some radio active probes. So what researcher Kate Datakova, a biologist at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City, did was identified some antibodies that bound to the surface of a tenacious fungus that plagues AIDS patients called Cryptococcus neoformans. Mm. And they got an antibody to that, put some radioactive compounds on it, in particular bismuth-123 and rhenium-188 atoms, hit the fungus, and nuked it to death. Ouch. I wonder if this would kill the pills for a doughboy. You know what would kill the Pillsbury Doughboy? Jenny Craig. Oh, and, yeah. You know, that that little round boy needs to go on a diet. Uh, but this is kind of a cool result. Does it suggest antifungal treatments, perhaps? Yes, it does. And if people want to learn more about this, they can read about it in our favorite journal. PNAS. PNAS. Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. So maybe this will be the new Monostat 8, right? <laughs> So what happens when you breathe hydrogen? I'm breathing hydrogen right now, aren't I? You are? Isn't it? I thought there's, it was... There's uh, some small fraction of hydrogen in the air. Okay, 0.0001% yeah. or whatever, right? Okay. So a question that a lot of scientists have been asking is, what happens to hydrogen in the air? I've uh, been wondering about that. And the reason is, if we move towards a hydrogen-based economy, and we have all these ah. extra leakages, what could be the possible effects? Right. So until now, it was thought that most of the hydrogen gets sucked back into uh, bacteria in the soil. Mm-hmm. So those are the sinks where the bacteria could actually digest these, the hydrogen. And convert it into water. And, and convert it uh, to you know, whatever is yeah. useful for them. But it turns out now that a study carried out here by the Boring Group here at Berkeley suggests that the hydrogen in the atmosphere sphere is taken up by OH radicals. So these, you know, highly reactive species can attack the hydrogen and convert it to perhaps water or something mm-hmm. else. And they've been able to see this because the enrichment of deuterium or hydrogen is much greater than anywhere else. So deuterium is the, uh, the isotope of hydrogen, which is a little bit heavier because they have one extra neutron in it. So, so they're seeing more of this deuterium in the atmosphere then when they test it? With right. The... So it, because of some kinetic effects, the regular hydrogen atoms are easier to react. So as a result, what's left over the deuterium species is in higher concentration in the atmosphere. I see. So it's not actually being taken up by biological processes, but rather chemical processes in the atmosphere. Chemical processes. Well, I'm, so the big question then, you know, that's probably good at the small scale, but will the atmosphere be able to handle a huge hydrogen load if we have that's hydrogen-based the, economy? Yeah, that's something that they're trying to wonder, but at uh-huh. least they know one mechanism where the hydrogen could be uh, dissipated sure. or reabsorbed somehow. Okay. And if not, just uh, breathe it in and <laughs> maybe get high. Yeah, get high. So if anyone wants to know more, just go to the August 21st issue of one of our other favorite journals, Nature. Nature. Oh, 
Okay, and if we're not going to stick around here breathing hydrogen, we can always go to the moon and breathe nothing. Breathe nothing? You're into that vacuum thing, huh? You know, the vacuum of space has so much allure. Just like your vacuous comments. <laughs> Thank you very little. Uh, well, it turns out, though, that India is planning a mission to the moon. India? India, yes. Oh, man. So they're going to build a military base and invade us at some point, right? <laughs> they are the, uh, the dark horse of uh, superpowers, I believe. Huh? Yes, they're certainly uh, looking to venture beyond Earth orbit, hmm. which will be one of the uh, first lunar explorations that's going to begin starting next month. It's going to begin with Europe's launching of the Smart One probe. So Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee has announced that the Indian Space Research Organization will fund a $100 million mission proposed almost four years ago, and now it's going to carry several Indian uh, experiments off to the moon as well as experiments from other countries as well. Wow, it'll bring them close to the Vishnu, huh? <laughs> one of their gods. Maybe closer to one of our gods. Or <laughs> not that, closer to the star, at least. Yeah. So if anyone wants to read more about this, it's in a recent commentary in Science. Ah, Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, Ms. Emily Labor-Warren, features editor at Popular Science Magazine, will tell us about the top ten scientists to watch. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, there certainly is no end to the many exciting developments currently taking place in several fields of science. But some work may just be a little bit more interesting, profound, useful, or just plain brilliant. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks is Ms. Emily Labor-Warren. Ms. Labor-Warren is the editor of Popular Science Magazine, which has just released its second annual list of top ten brilliant scientists to watch. And she joins us today to give us a glimpse at some of these brilliant scientists. Uh, Ms. Labor-Warren, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Hi, it's great to be here. So this is a very fascinating list that's appeared in the recent edition of uh, Popular Science, showing the top ten brilliant scientists to watch. Before we get into the details of the list, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this list and why Popular Science has decided to portray these scientists. Sure. Well, normally, you know, actors, athletes, politicians, those are the kinds of people who are considered celebrities in our culture, and scientists are not. And we wanted to change that. So we decided that we wanted to introduce to readers some fascinating people who they would normally never know about. So what we did 
and this is our second year, we started it last year, is we made a whole bunch of phone calls to heads of departments at prestigious universities who the organizations that give out awards to promising young scientists. We read up on everything, and we came up with nominations and winnowed it down, and then we chose 10 people who were doing exciting and innovative work in a variety of fields and decided to give little profiles of them. See, I see. And how, how did you choose the different fields? Well, we wanted a balance between the earth sciences, the more physical sciences, biological, so it was pretty I elementary. See. Well, the list certainly seems to run gamut from uh, what, geophysics to molecular anthropology there. Mm -hmm. So, so tell us about some of these fascinating people here. Well, I mean, one of the things that really stood out to us is that these were not nerds in white lab coat. These were all very passionate, creative, and risk-taking people. They range in age from 22 to 49. And just to give you a sense of the kinds of things they do, our youngest, the 22-year-old, is a guy named Eric Demain. He's at MIT. And one of the things that's so interesting to me about him is that he's made a job out of playing. <laughs> what he does is called computational origami and it's basically he folds paper all day <laughs> and he's been solving mathematical theorems by doing this on a computer obviously he's not physically folding paper all the time <laughs> right. so he's in the more abstract realm and then there are people who have there's a woman named Betty Pace she had a friend who died of sickle cell anemia when she was a child and she said I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to devote my life to curing this disease and she has done just that and she's at the University of Texas Dallas and she's come up with a very innovative gene therapy technique that has shown some promise recently in combating sickle cell anemia Wow it's, it's absolutely fascinating so what is this fellow who folds paper all day, what is he trying to accomplish with the computational origami? The cool thing about it is that it has some amazing practical applications. For example, work in the field, which is a very, very new field, has helped scientists figure out, for example, how to most safely fold an airbag in a car, oh. how to most safely fold it so that if it pops out, it's not going to hurt the passenger. And it's also been used by astronomers who are trying to figure out how to unfold a telescope in space without damaging it. So it has amazing practical applications, but the neat thing about people who are interested in mathematics, I've found, is that they don't really concern themselves with that. They're very, very into just the numbers. The ideas to them are just beautiful. Right. Well, as you mentioned, biological sciences are very big right now. You have the lady working on uh, molecular medicine, and yeah. also you featured someone on genomics as well. Yep. We have um, a couple other people in biotech. There is a woman named Tejal Desai. She's at Boston University. She's really remarkable. Her PhD thesis was so hard that her colleagues told her, don't accept it. You will never, ever <laughs> accomplish it, and you won't get your degree. But she moved forward, and she spent four years and ultimately developed a device that would be implanted into diabetes it would enable them not to have to take the insulin injections that they have to take. Currently, it would basically be an insulin-producing device tiny, 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 that would just live inside their bodies. She made it one that works for rats, and it's currently being developed for humans. And it's basically just a tea strainer made of silicon, super tiny, and it has pancreas cells inside it. And it has little holes that are big enough that the insulin that the cells are making can escape, but small enough that the human body or the body's immune reaction against foreign cells, those cells cannot get in to attack them. Clever. 
There is one Berkeley scientist. His name is Michael Manga, and he's a he's in geophysics, and he studies long, long range processes that happen in the Earth, like the shifting of tectonic plates, the sort of hot spots that lead to volcanoes. And one of the ways that he does it, because he doesn't have time to wait around a billion years to see what's going to happen, is he models them in his lab using things like huge vats of corn syrup, which he will mix with other materials and heat or cool and watch what happens and through that prove some of his ideas um, or test some of his ideas about the way Uh. that the Earth works. Well, so another big thing that's coming up, especially in this age of computers, is quantum cryptography. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Quantum? Well, I mean, one of the things about these people, these scientists, is that they're the people who are going to be bringing us all kinds of future inventions that are going to make a huge difference in our lives. I mean, the next generation of electronics, the next life-saving medicines, and in this case, a scientist named Sewu Nam, who's at uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, he's developing the next technology that's going to protect us from, for example, identity fraud on the internet. It's basically a way of absolutely verifying whether an encrypted or a secret code that's been sent over the internet, it could be your you know, MasterCard number, has been eavesdropped upon. And it's extremely ingenious. It builds on the very weird, spooky world of, of quantum dynamics. It's kind of complicated, but one of the cool things about it is that particles tend to have this ability to exist in two places at once, but as soon as they're observed, they freeze into a single place. Mm -hmm. So building on that characteristic of quantum particles, he's made it possible to see if something has been observed, it will freeze into place. And using that whole idea, he's been able to build a machine that will be able to tell whether code has been eavesdropped Mm -hmm. upon. Well, that'll certainly be a bane to all the hackers out there. Yeah, well, hopefully. That's the idea anyway. Uh, let's see. Well, we're running short on time, but I, I don't want to leave anyone out. So uh, there's a lot of uh, work also being done on microfluidics as well. And yeah, that is work that's basically making chips similar to computer chips, but th- rather than running on electrons, they use um, fluids. And one of the cool applications there is that it's like a lab on a ship. You can do multiple or hundreds of chemical reactions simultaneously on a very, very small chip, and it's a great way to test um, different substances that you're looking into, for example, as potential medicines against certain chemical processes. But um, there's one person I would love to just get in there because she really struck me as being so intrepid and wonderful. Her name is Sarah Tishkoff, and she's in one of those fields that's so new that she had to basically create her own course of study because it didn't really exist when she was in graduate school. She's a molecular anthropologist. She basically looks at DNA that she extracts from the blood of living people, and through looking at different genetic mutations, she can basically trace back through generations and generations to figure out how human populations evolved and moved from place to place. And one thing that is, I think, really cool about her is that she found that she didn't have enough blood samples from Africa, and that was a very important place because it seems that the human race developed there initially, mm-hmm. and she wanted to look at a wide range of peoples there. So she just, without any experience or any training, she jumped in a, in a plane and got a Land Rover, went to Tanzania, and basically just jury-rigged her battery of her car to a centrifuge and went around <laughs> convincing African people, herds people, tribes people, that w- what she was doing was important and not harmful and that they would donate their blood to her and then she would process it in the centrifuge <laughs> on her car. And she was really uh, quite innovative and I thought very, uh, very interesting person. Wow. Well, it sounds, certainly sounds like a very adventurous uh, scientist there. Yes. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I'm just curious. So popular science, they're going to do this every year? and Absolutely. 
actually, we had wonderful results last year, and then this is our second time. We're getting a lot more attention, and we're hoping to build it into a real annual event and maybe even have a dinner where we'll be able to fly wow. them all in. And I think people really respond to seeing the faces behind these more sort of impersonal reports that you get about scientific uh, results. I certainly think so. Well, uh, Ms. Labor-Warren, I just want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks to Absolutely. give us a profile of these brilliant scientists. It was Thanks. a pleasure. You were just listening to Ms. Emily Labor-Warren, Features Editor at Popular Science Magazine, telling us about the top ten scientists to watch. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out what makes oil so slippery. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what makes oil so slippery? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Did you ever wonder why oil is so slippery? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. All liquids are slippery but oil is especially so. This unique trait can be explained by comparing the molecular structure of a patch of water to that of a patch of oil. Here we are, inside water. If you look around, you'll notice that this water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. Now, molecularly speaking, oxygen is very, very attractive. Other substances, like hydrogen, are really drawn to it. So even though hydrogen and oxygen are always moving, because of this attraction, they're always in close touch with each other. You could say that the molecules in water really stick together. And that's why water isn't super slippery. Oil is a different story, as you'll soon see. Take a good look around this patch of oil. Notice anything different between the molecular structure of oil and water? See, oil is made up of hydrogen and 
carbon. There's no oxygen in here at all. Because of this lack of oxygen, the molecules don't stick together as much. They're still connected, but oil doesn't have the same kind of attraction that water has. That's why those molecules are able to slide all around and over each other, creating a very slippery substance and surface. Hope you enjoyed this rather slick account of why oil is so slippery. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, making science make sense. Wow, that's pretty slick. It is slick indeed. I'm, I'm just curious, where does KY Jelly fall into that? Oil? Is that water? I think it's somewhere in between. I'm sure the Everyday Science Lady could help us out yeah. if she felt so inclined. <laughs> okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the shape of DNA, deoxyl ribonucleic acid? Well, the shape of DNA is a helix, and actually it comes in three forms, A, B, and Z. The most common is the B form, as described by the Watson and Crick's paper. We also have the Z form, which goes in the opposite direction with a different type of helicity, but that is only seen under strained conditions, and that is what the shape of DNA is. Tokyo Kid, eh? I am Pierre Pierre Francois, and I have this week's question of the week. Ooh la la, I look at the sun all day long because the women, they make me crazy. Ooh la la, and then now I wonder, what is the cycle of the sunspots that come in and out? What is the cycle? Well, if you know the answer, just think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, ooh la la, you just might save your retinas. Ooh la la, and that is all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.